Welcome to the newest episode of the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. I'm your host, Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I talk with Stephanie Summers, the CEO of the Center for Public Justice, a think tank based in Washington, D.C. Together, we talk about what public justice means and how we can be politically engaged in a cynical and anxious time. If you've wondered what it means to be politically active in ways that go beyond a vote you cast every few years, we hope that you benefit from this conversation. And thanks, as always, for tuning in. In my early 20s, I used to pride myself on being politically uninvolved and apathetic. This was not completely true, because I still voted, at least in the presidential elections starting in the year 2000. But I would always say that I didn't have much faith in the process. It seemed to me that politics was downstream from culture, and so it was better to spend one's energy there. And for the most part, for the past 20 years, I have— spent more of my energy on understanding and engaging culture than politics. But I've also come around to another way of seeing the relationship of culture and politics. I've come to realize that political engagement is a crucial way that we seek justice and seek to love our neighbors, and that political discipleship is more than a vote that gets cast every four years. But political discipleship is difficult especially in a time of such deep division. A recent poll indicated that parents would much rather have their children marry a partner from a different religion than a different political party. Indeed, when it comes to religion and politics, sometimes it is difficult to see where one ends and the other begins. I will not attempt to solve the problem of political polarization here. I simply want to note that we need models of nuanced, convicted, Christian civility, where followers of Jesus are working in the weeds, faithfully present, not just in the halls of Congress, but also in local spaces, engaged in activism, working for the good of all, in the name of Christ. I have found one such model in the Center for Public Justice, a Christian think tank based in Washington, D.C. The Center, CPJ, works on multiple layers, not just to craft legislation, but also to equip citizens for advocacy, building partnerships and connections so that justice is realized in public by a thriving network of purpose-filled communities. I was so inspired by their work that I joined the Board of Trustees. And so this conversation with Stephanie Summers, the CEO of CPJ, is one in which I am already deeply invested on multiple layers as a fan, a supporter, a board member, but most of all as a learner, someone who wants to learn more about how to love my neighbor through political action. And perhaps we can learn together. And to that end, here's my conversation with Stephanie Summers. So I'm joined now by our featured guest, Stephanie Summers. Stephanie is the CEO of the Center for Public Justice. She is an author, speaker, and activist, and her work seeks to empower other citizen activists to address issues of public justice. Stephanie, 
Thanks for joining us on the In All Things podcast. Hi, Justin. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. So let me start this way. There's a chapter that you wrote in the book, Reform Public Theology. You open it by telling your story of being an activist from an early age, or at least having this sort of activist intuition. Uh, And then you tell the story of the process of becoming a different sort of activist. So I wonder if you could start by just recounting something of that journey of activism, uh, especially how it came to take roots in the Reformed theological tradition. Sure. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I, I mean, I would say that my family shaped my concern for the world around me. Um, my parents were both uh, kids of families of faith, um, but they were lapsed from their faith. So I would say I was raised in a household that was shaped a lot by uh, what I would call Christian morality um, and c- Christian concern, uh, but right. not necessarily shaped by people who were actively practicing the Christian faith. Uh, my mom had wanted to be a diplomat, uh, she, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, she went to school in an era where uh, women who went into the foreign service were mostly secretaries rather than the secretary of state. Uh, And so she ended up uh, not uh, going into the foreign service, um, but she was a person who cared deeply around, you know, the community around her. And uh, one of the things that she, you know, really invested uh, her time and energy into uh, was uh, kind of different community service type activities. Uh, She was active as a Girl Scout leader for us. So, you know, my sister and I were Girl Scouts for the entirety of our childhoods. uh, And my mom was our troop leader. And, you know, she really didn't just leave it at, you know, let's acquire some skills. Uh, Mm -hmm. For her, it was really about being turned towards our neighbors uh, in the work that we were doing. She also fostered in us a love for reading, Um, And so we both learned, my sister and I both learned to read when we were really young. The kindergartner teachers were super happy. We showed up. We knew how to read already. (laughs) And, you know, my mom got us library cards when we turned four. That was like our thing. Uh, And my mom, you know, she says this was just dumb luck. uh, But, you know, she, when we would come home from school, she would always ask us the question, what did you learn at school today that you thought was interesting? which is such a brilliant question, right? Because it's not, what did you do? But what Mm. was interesting to you? And then whatever we told her, she would say, you want to go get a library book about that? And we'd truck off to the library and get a book. And so things that I That's pro-parenting right there. Isn't it awesome? It's amazing to me. You know, one of the things that, you know, happened was, you know, it expanded our world of concern, right? Because, you know, I would learn something interesting about, say, nature, and I would be eager to learn more. And we'd go read a book and some of the books would raise questions of concern around, you know, pollution or things like that. I'm from Western Pennsylvania and um, Rachel Carson, one of the early environmentalists, you know, uh, wrote a book called Silent Spring that was quite pathbreaking when it was written. You know, these types of books were, you know, available to us as kids. And it became a place where I started to care about things as a very young child, uh, you know, maybe like fifth grade, about the environment, um, about animal welfare, about nuclear weapons. I somehow ended up reading something somewhere about nuclear weapons and was really concerned about what they would do to the world. 
Um, and those sort of shaped kind of my early, you know, activist thinking. Uh, by the time I got, you know, be a, a young person with enough, uh, you know, chutzpah to say to my mother, I'm going to become a vegetarian. I was 12. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I explained to her that I was going to be a vegetarian on climate and on uh, animal welfare grounds. And she thought she was going to outdo me on the pro-parenting side on this one by telling me I would have to learn how to cook, to which I said, challenge accepted. And, <laughs> and I have been a vegetarian since I was 12. You know, these things kind of shaped me a bunch. You know, obviously, there were things that I was doing that were like, service oriented within my community. But there was so other set of things where I was like, we're going to need better public policy, or we're going to need better ways that people are encouraged to raise their animals? Or are there ways that we could work for nuclear non-proliferation rather than just keep having more nuclear weapons? Um, and so I was writing about those things. I was writing the legislators. I was writing within the context of organizations. And I started a bunch of clubs at my high school that worked on this stuff too. So there was a point at which I started to bring other people, you know, kind of into this conversation. The thing that I wrote about in Reform Public theology that was really distorted about this is at some point, uh, my identity got really caught up in the right. power dynamic of this. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, how many people I could get involved in something, um, mm -hmm. what I could get them to do, right? How we could win against the other side in mm -hmm. our, you know, kind of outmaneuver uh, people. Um, and really looking at an other side as somehow inherently evil rather than, you know, in disagreement or, you know, not as informed or not as competent or something like that. And then when I was 16, I met Christ. And one of the things that happened in that was not only did it reorganize all of the categories for me of what does it mean to serve in these ways where, you know, I couldn't just demonize opponents. They had to be human to me, um, where I had to be a person who could work to understand, not just like be a billboard for what I thought was true. Mm. Um, but also um, the folks who I initially encountered were not people who looked at these, you know, particular political or activist agendas as under Christ's Lordship, they sort of looked at them as irrelevant. And so I literally remember having conversations where people were like, that's nice that you cared about those things, but you're going to need to stop caring. And wow. to me, <laughs> The more I read scripture, the more convinced I was I was supposed to care, right? And so it was very challenging for me until I went to college, where I was then introduced to people who kind of had this robust understanding of the Reformed worldview. You know, I, I, I couldn't figure out how to reconcile these things, you know. Once I got to college, and then frankly, once I met Jim Skillen, who was the first executive director for CPJ, who I met when I was 19 years old, that sent me on the journey um, to be able to understand what it means to take seriously politics as an act of neighbor love, what it means to have activism that doesn't just play into the power dynamic, mm. um, but instead looks at it as something fitting within kind of a rightly ordered structure uh, that's intended. And the more I spent time there, uh, the more my, you know, kind of world of concern expanded to things that were 
you know, beyond the things I had been introduced to initially, um, but also the more I could see these things embedded in scripture. Um, so, you know, I, I write that chapter to sort of talk about this, you know, place where I could actually become a person who had hope as the thing that I was working to achieve in the midst of sometimes things not looking like they would change a whole lot, as opposed to measuring every victory by some number that I could accrete to myself, uh, which is a pretty different end uh, in, you know, to a journey. Yeah. I love that answer because it sort of shows the way that that activism that you had from an early age, when you came to Christ, it didn't replace that. It fulfilled it in some sense. It yeah. completed it, pointed it in a new direction, gave yeah. it something more robust. And I, I love it because we have students, of course, who uh, maybe are listening to this podcast and feel that same sense of fire, that activism uh, for various issues and um, just that sense that, that there's something good about that. There's something yeah. right about that, but it might also not have very deep roots, you yes. know, which is why, um, which is why grounding it in a tradition um, in the reform tradition and for you was, was so important. Literally Jim Skillen, when I talked to him the first time, so again, the founding executive director for CPJ, when I gave him my, you know, word, torrent about, you know, <laughs> this is why I'm passionate about this. And what you've just said about the biblical theme of justice has rocked my world. His comment was, it sounds like your activism has no root. That's mm. literally what he said to me. And then he asked me if I like to read because he wanted to make sure I read some <laughs> stuff. I was like, yeah. I do like to read. Um, but, yes. you know, I do think that's, you've diagnosed exactly the thing. And thankfully, that was the gift of coming into understanding kind of the reform worldview. There's so many resources. I just didn't know what they were. Right. Um, and it did answer a set of questions that, you know, uh, spoke exactly to that very uneasy place um, for me. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned the fact of as you became a Christian and were reading scripture that you began to be convinced that this is something that scripture uh, and that God deeply cares about. And I know a lot of times when the topic of justice is brought up these days, Christians like to make these distinctions between social justice and secular justice and biblical justice. And you are the CEO of the Center for Public Justice. And so two questions. First, what is public justice? How do you sort of define it? And then second, if you could just tell us more about the Center for Public Justice, what it is and yeah. what it does. Sure, I'm happy to. So public justice is the norm for government's work um, and really ensuring a just public order for all people and all institutions. That's really, so when we're thinking about the task of government, ensuring and upholding public justice is the task that government is created for. You might hear in that the implication that that's, sometimes that means government has to do a lot of work. Sometimes government needs to lay off. And mm. so kind of the normative statement about public justice doesn't fall into this like easy, you know, like big government, small government, right. um, you know, because it really depends on what that justice would look like in a particular question. Mm. Um, so I could talk about that a lot more, but let me say a little bit about what CPJ is because I'm sure kind of the, the norm of public justice itself will probably come back in the answers, uh, you know, as we keep going through this conversation. But um, so we are based in Washington, D.C. We do the work of equipping citizens, developing leaders, shaping public policy. Um, and we do that in service to God as we advance justice and transform public life. 
you know, when we talk about equipping citizens, much of that work is education. Much of that work is education for advocacy. So it's both the reformational worldview foundation that I was introduced to. Um, and it is also direct information and also opportunity to apply that information in advocacy work and sometimes even lobbying. We do leadership development with a bunch of different programs. Um, so we equip young people through a whole set of work we call shared justice. We equip faith-based organization leaders through several different programs. Our newest program uh, is specifically for uh, leaders of Hispanic uh, serving organizations. Um, so it's a, a set of work called Equipping Ministries Fellowship. Uh, and we found these organizations are often uh, in complex situations where many of the members of their organizations are folks with mixed immigration status. Many of them are coming from sending countries where governments have acted with impunity against their citizens. Um, and so the challenges of making the leap to trying to hold government to account for ensuring public justice, there's a couple layers of chilling effect there. Right. Um, and so working to help advance kind of understanding about what does it look like um, to really uh, speak as citizens or speak as those institutions is really important. And then the last kind of body of work we do is direct shaping of policy. So both we do that in writing public policy or writing recommendations for public policy we do it by organizing public comments, uh, by commenting on proposed legislation, uh, by convening coalitions. We run several and participate in several um, that help um, government achieve that norm of public justice. And I would say in particular, our insight is often to see the associational or institutional dimension of policymaking particularly as impacts people of faith and faith-based organizations themselves. You know, we spend a lot of time in Washington, D.C. doing policymaking that's focused on individuals um, and not a ton focused on the associational or institutional elements. Um, and that's a place where we bring a lot of our, our work to bear. Yeah, I, I really appreciate the way that CPJ, CPJ is working on all these different sort of layers or levels or in these spaces. There's a public policy aspect, but there's also connecting uh, different people who are working for justice. There's an educational aspect for people with churches and things like that. And it always makes me think of when I was growing up and anytime the question of poverty came up, I always would hear that the government shouldn't interfere, it should allow churches, should allow private charities to step in. I'd go to church, I'd hear that, no, well, the church isn't supposed to help the poor, the church is supposed to preach the gospel. And I was sort of always left, well, who is actually supposed to do something about this? And it usually would be something about individual responsibility, which which makes sense at one level. But one of the things that you write about is the importance of multiple healthy institutions uh, and that we require more than just a just government. We need thriving a thriving network of purpose-filled communities, which of course is the outworking of this reformed emphasis on institutions, yeah. as well as the concept of sphere sovereignty or sphere interdependence, as Rob Jostra calls it. And I wonder if you could say more about this multi-tiered, intentionally multi-tiered, I don't know if that's the best word, multi-tiered, it sounds like a pyramid scheme, but <laughs> this sort of variegated um, approach to public justice that is seeking to, to work with multiple spheres to address various, various issues. 
Right. That's great. Thank you. It's a great question. Within the sphere sovereignty framework, right, you're really looking at God's purpose for institutions, right? Every institution in society is, uh, you know, set on a course to uphold justice. Let's pick a dumb example because you're like a dad, but like uh, there's a lot of work that's done in your family uh, to make sure that you don't make all of your kids do the same exact thing when one of them is particularly talented at one thing and another is talented at another. I mean, you know, right. yeah. my my sister and I should not have spent the same energy on the same types of lessons, given that she is a consummate artist <laughs> and I'm good with words. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, I think there's, you know, there's a justice dynamic, even within something like the family. Uh, And um, when we think about God's purpose for institutions, there's a justice dynamic within each of those institutions. The the piece that is so, I think, insightful about the sphere sovereignty framework that Kuiper conceived is applying that to government and politics. Um, So, you know, we talked about this kind of public justice as a norm part of what public justice is, is making room for the fullest contributions of the other institutions in society to do Mm. their thing, right? So at the level of the family, right, that is, how do we support and protect families when we know that families are institutions that have particularly vulnerable seasons, Mm. right? When we know that families are subject to conditions like market forces, which may or may not be something that they have any ability to thrive in the face of, right? You know, if you pay any attention to the news right now, discussions about inflation and how that impacts Americans is a significant part of the conversation, right? For good reason. When we think about the fullness of contributions that are being made by faith-based organizations or by businesses or by universities, right, um, government is duty-bound to make room for those institutions to do their thing. Uh, The accreditation process for a school like Dort, right, the government has whole, you know, sets of regulations, but it also makes a ton of room for accrediting bodies that are non-governmental organizations to do peer review and decide, hey, government, you know, Dort's meeting the standard that peers say it needs to meet. And it even takes into account the faith basis of Dort as part of its accreditation process. And it's not applying, you know, those non-governmental organizations are not applying faith standards to non-faith institutions, but they're looking at Dort and saying, for you guys to have integrity, you've said you do X, so we're looking to make sure you're doing X. It's not inhibiting the ability of these institutions to do their thing, right? Government also has this responsibility as public justice norm, right, to adjudicate between these institutions when, say, they're failing to carry out the norms of justice or there's intersphere conflict, right? So on the first example, right, let's go back to family, right? When families who are primarily responsible for the education and nurture of their children fail to do that, they're failing to care for their kids, the government steps in. Uh, You know, we have a foster care system that doesn't work as well as anyone wants it to. But the goal of the foster care system is designed to be temporary, to remove kids from families, to keep them safe. 
but then get them back into families, hopefully their own family restored. So government is saying, this family right now isn't capable of carrying out the norm, (laughs) but we need them to. How do we get them what they need so they can? Or how do we find these kids a different family because government recognizes the government isn't designed to raise families. We're not so good at it as government, right? Right. Or it's designed to adjudicate between institutions when they're actually causing conflict for one another, right? So, you know, when market forces say overtake something like families' ability to thrive, this kind of network of purpose-filled communities is something that God intended for the public order the kind of insight with the kind of sphere sovereignty insight there is kind of thinking associationally and institutionally, not just always individually. So when we think about poverty, you know, to go back to your experience growing up and hearing these things, you know, I would say that there is this multi-tiered or multi-associational work of ensuring justice. And often the solutions are shared for a couple reasons, right? First, the need and the resource are not always co-located. I think about this a lot. I had an opportunity once to speak on um, Capitol Hill with a group of students who had come from all over the country. And a sinning U.S. senator spoke right before me and said, you know, I think the church just needs to do the church's job. Um, And, you know, uh, basically made similar comments about poverty that, that, you had made, Justin, or that you had heard mm-hmm. as a, growing up. And this young man got up and was super respectful at the end, but he just said, Mr. Senator, like my, my family's from Appalachia. My dad died when I was a kid. My mom can't work because she's physically disabled. My family's been on public assistance our whole lives. I live in a community where like, there's no money in the churches to be able to help my family. My family literally would have starved are you saying this is the church's job? Because he's really trying to track, you know, like the logical extension. Mm-hmm. And and the senator said, yes, mm-hmm. I think it is the church's job. And I think the student was kind of mystified in the sense of like, in my community, the need and the resource are not co-located, right? Um, <laughs> I would also just challenge folks who are coming from the perspective that the church should do all the work on poverty and the government should not my colleague Stanley Carlson Tees often says, no one is stopping the church from doing more to solve, solve poverty. That's right. Yeah, yeah here we are. Um, and so, you know, there is unfortunately not the generosity that we would hope to see from the church where the resources are if we were going to solve the poverty question. And in the meantime, um, does that mean we should allow for the suffering of our neighbor? And I would say no. Um, the last thing is we often talk about these things as though they're binaries, government or church. And I would argue that the reality of government partnerships with faith-based organizations who are on the ground, um, who have immense social capital, who know where the resources and needs are, is one of the best ways to accomplish much of the poverty alleviation that needs to happen. Um, And so, you know, there are, again, this is a place where you need more government um, in the sense that government has to articulate the rules by which faith-based organizations can participate in government programs, right? And not violate the religious free exercise of the organizations themselves, 
but also not violate the religious free exercise of the beneficiaries of the services, right? We shouldn't make coming to Bible camp the the way you get this free lunch, right? Um, And at the same time, we shouldn't make the people who run the Bible camp unable to run the Bible camp because they want to serve meals to their neighbors. Mm. Um, And so that has to be articulated very carefully. Mm. Um, It's something that CPJ has done decades of work on and continues to work on every time there's a new program or new set of questions. uh, We're part of the conversation to try to shape it in a way that helps all of the institutions be able to bring their fullest contribution. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think these things are, you know, really important. And um, I do think it is, it is, easy to say it should just be the church's job or the government should get out of the way. It's a lot harder um, to kind of live with the nuance of, I think, what God really intends for the good uh, in that kind of diversity of institutions response to poverty. Yeah. And, and one of the challenges for the nuance you've just articulated uh, is is the fact that nuance doesn't play well um, in our current no. current climate. Uh, maybe it never has. But one of the challenges for organizations like CPJ who are doing bipartisan, pro- working on bipartisan projects, interdependent projects, uh, is this polarization yeah. that we hear so much about and experience ourselves. And so yeah. how do you navigate this question of choosing sides? You know, justice chooses sides, as people say. And a lot of times there's this sense that, well, you know, I'm on this side. I know there's problems with my side, but there's way more problems with the other side. And so because of this polarization where we we don't even feel like we can criticize our own side because the other side is so much worse, both sides think that. Um, So how have you navigated that polarization in your own work as well as encouraging others, um, as you said before, you know, to seek understanding and not just try to win and dominate um, in the political sphere? Yeah. Well, first, I, I do just want to commend um, the work of my friend Justin Gibney from the AND campaign, because I think, you know, they have also done a lot on this question um, that I think is very helpful to people who are trying to navigate the complexity of this. And I, I just really respect and admire how they have sought to bring kind of that consciously into the conversation. So I just would commend their work. Yeah, I mean, you know, people are right. There are problems with both sides. That shouldn't surprise us, particularly those of us that come from the reformed perspective. It should never surprise us. You know, I would just counsel that we really, as Christians, shouldn't define our identity by our political party affiliation. And one of the challenges is it feels like that's what we ought be doing, or it feels like we have to react against that right now. And so that makes it particularly hard. People feel like pox on both your houses Mm -hmm. or pox on that house. So I'm joining this one, even though I don't fit comfortably here. At the same time, all of that being said, you know, not defining our identity in this place. There are problems with both sides. In most places in the country, in order to fully participate in the electoral process, one has to choose a party with which to affiliate. And, you know, I have 
good friends uh, who have worked in the uh, election integrity side of the work, and they will tell you how few people vote in their primaries um, and how shocked they were to discover how few people were making the decisions at the most local level uh, for their whole political community. And feeling like this, this representation, because people are not willing to choose a party, doesn't serve us well. That's a challenge because I think we want to be, especially as Christians, we want to be associated with something that we feel like we can totally say yes to. Yeah. Um, and we can't at the level of political party. But I would just ask folks to consider what sitting on the sideline might mean in your most local political community in terms of how decisions get made. You know, my recommendation often is choose an affiliation um, and then work for its reform on the inside rather than being a rock tosser from the outside. Mm. And then I also think at the same time, we need to be people who are working for reform of the bigger system. So we either have more choices than just two or we have electoral structures that have more just representation, right? You know, people complain about things like gerrymandering. Gerrymandering won't stop until more people are involved to say, this is not okay. Hmm. Um, but we're not going to be able to do that being rock tossers from the outside of the system. Um, and so there are some structural reforms that really need people to have made choices to be in, even though we are very uncomfortable being in. So I know that doesn't make it feel neat or less painful, um, but I would just ask folks to sort of weigh the tension there. I in no way want to bind someone's conscience. So I know there are people for whom saying yes to a political party would would be doing that. Um, but for a lot of folks, uh, we've just kind of abdicated the question because we're like, oh, hey, this is ugly and I don't want to be a part. And we haven't considered the importance of why being a part, what, what that could possibly do. Yeah. And I think the abdication also takes place on another level where we think that the most meaningful political action I can make is a vote that I cast every four years. 100%. And I've noticed that, especially with some of my students, you know, that it's, all fixated on which president, which presidential candidate do you support? Which presidential candidate can't you stand? Or which issue, you know, is it so that this certain candidate has your vote? And I just try to tell them it's your political life is more than voting. So I wonder if you could help us with what are some meaningful political actions to love our neighbor, as you say, yeah. uh, that we can take that goes beyond just casting a vote every four years or maybe two years if you're really good. You know, yeah. what, what, what are some political actions that we should consider? Yeah, that's great. We actually wrote a whole book on this topic. Um, so the, the book will take you two hours to read. It's called Unleashing Opportunity, Why Escaping Poverty Requires a Shared Vision of Justice. Mm. And we wrote it because we realized that a lot of people felt the same way, that everything revolves around who's the president. And they were missing the opportunities for justice that are in their own backyard, where their neighbors have an everyday need for justice and where one way to love their neighbors is through politics. So in Unleashing Opportunity, we, we intentionally picked five backyard issues that were present within 15 minutes of every college campus in the country. Hmm. There are more than just those issues, but we picked them because they were things that were connected to larger issues that people felt like were 
entirely out of their control. So for example, we talked about juvenile justice reform. So there's this whole movement on criminal justice uh, and you know ending racial disparity in the criminal justice system. But the pipeline to the criminal justice system is the juvenile justice system that gets decided at the most local level in your community. The difference between whether or not a kid gets diverted from the system for skipping school or whether they end up in probation with an ankle monitor or whether they end up incarcerated, those decisions are getting made at your most local level. And literally in most jurisdictions, those courts are actually open to the public and you could go and sit in the courtroom today and watch kids getting sentenced. Um, the pipeline between, uh, foster care and human trafficking, um, happens in everyone's backyard. So intervening in that system or the devastation that's brought about by payday loans, which are small dollar loans made to people who can least afford them. And they're made at exorbitant interest rates in Iowa. The interest rate on a payday loan is 337% APR. Yeah. So, you know, you're right. Political life is so much more than voting, but there are plenty of issues that are political in your backyard where your neighbors are in daily need of just systems or just laws or just adjudication of the law. And all of these need folks to be involved in them. You know, as an example, we do a bunch of work on juvenile justice, particularly on diversion. Um, So kids never even touch the system for status offenses like skipping school. Instead, they end up with mentors or they end up with opportunities to serve in the community that are actually meaningful. This can completely change a kid's life trajectory. Um, And there are a bunch of opportunities where citizens can both advocate for the system to embrace things like diversion, but also actively serve within the systems on things like youth assistance panels, where youth actually get to talk about why they did what they did. And then a group of community members gives them a sentence typically not sentencing them to detention or probation, but typically sentencing them to something like a mentoring program or counseling. Um, So those kinds of things happen all the time in our backyards and there's a ton of opportunities for them. Yeah, that's fantastic. And we will link to that resource in the notes, the show notes for those who are listening. So I remember you mentioned to me, uh, and this was a few months before the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, that in Washington, it sometimes feels like every single policy proposal, the sort that you work on, is filtered through this lens of, well, how will this affect the fight over abortion? Uh, That, you know, has always felt like such an intractable and impossible debate. And yet you've successfully, CPJ has successfully advanced family supportive legislation, in the midst of that fight. So now how does the overturning of Roe affect the work of CPJ? So yeah, we've worked for more than six years now advancing family supportive public policies, including things like paid family and medical leave, including an expansion of childcare funding to be faith inclusive. Um, We're the first Christian organization that convened other Christians to say these policies are pro-life, pro-family, and pro-worker. And as Christians, we should be for them. And that's hard in the sense many people see a lot of these 
as progressive policy priorities, not as pro-life priorities. Mm-hmm. For the most part, um, <laughs> what I'm excited about post-Roe is that many citizens and Hill staff who've basically sat on the sidelines for the last six years are paying attention to what we have said wow. um, because folks are not okay um, with some of the ways that in the states, the restrictions on abortion have not come with ways to promote family and promote the well-being of women and children. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we also have a big advocacy push happening with, you know, we're doing about monthly advocacy trainings and organizing state delegations to speak with legislators about these policies. Um, and frankly, we'd love to have more people engaged in communicating about them. Um, but, you know, the the downside, uh, you know, of women and children being in some pretty precarious situations right now is that it has catalyzed some energy to figure out how um, we can come alongside those women with policies that will support women and child and family well-being. Yeah, it's interesting. I interviewed Marjorie Gano, who's a psychologist at Calvin University recently, and we were talking about something seemingly unrelated, attachment theory, and which I find super fascinating, which yeah. is the idea that you know the the attachment you feel to your early caregivers correlates with all sorts of things with human flourishing. And yeah. and I asked her one of the implications of it. And she said, you know, we really need to support young families. We need to support young yeah. parents. And, and you know, the, the fact that that sort of piece from psychological science also connects with, you know, what we know scripturally. Yeah. And, and it's encouraging and exciting to see uh, CPJ working on that sort of thing. I wonder maybe as we sort of wind down here, most of the time when we even begin to broach political, you know, topics, people are just exhausted, feel exhausted already about it. And that's why I'm so encouraged by, you know, people who work at CPJ and the Ann campaign, you know, people who are really in the trenches, waist deep in the work, they also seem like they're so hopeful. And so I wonder how do you resist cynicism as mm. you, you know, work every day on this, on this stuff and continue to move forward with, with patience and hope? How do you cultivate hope in a time that's characterized by cynicism? Yeah. So this may seem like a weird direction in the answer, but it is the answer. Like, I think my mindset is generally deeply tied to the hospitality that Jesus showed me. Hmm. I I was truly God's enemy, and I did not know what it meant to love and serve God. And God was very, very patient with me (laughs) and did not give up on me. Hmm. When I find situations where there is uh, no justice. I often find that a lot of the problems within those situations seem to be related to a lack of competence. And by that, I mean the technical definition. People don't know how to do what they are being asked to do, right? Mm. Or they don't know the right thing to do. You know, it's a different thing if people learn how to be responsible and do choose to do nothing. That's a different and less hopeful story, right? But so far, my experience has been that taking the time to help people know and be responsible often changes things for the better. It is mustard seed style work, but mm. CPJ has been around for 45 years, and we have a lot of stories of things that seemed really small that yielded massive changes um, in part because we were patient with people in asking (laughs) 
So significantly, not in a muted way, but in a way that respected uh, them and asked them to become more competent. Um, and, you know, for me, that kind of hope piece is there that if someone who uh, was as enemy of God as I was, uh, uh, can be a person who can work for the good. Uh, I can recognize God's ability to work through people who I don't see working for the good very often right now. Mm. Amen. Well, maybe our listeners have been intrigued and would like to know more or would like to get involved with the work of CPJ. Uh, What are some ways that they could do that? Yeah. First, easy thing, follow us on social media. It's the best way to keep up with what's happening like in real time. We, our website, cpjustice.org, you can sign up to get more information about our work. That would include getting invitations to things like our advocacy trainings um, and uh, information about new resources as we release them. And then, you know, particularly because I'm talking to someone who works a lot with college students, um, we have paid internships in Washington, D.C. three times a year, fall, spring, summer. Um, We... uh, have a For Us By Us publication called sharejustice.org for which students can write. And then because Dort is affiliated with the CCCU, we have a research prize that we award to student faculty teams um, to conduct research on a domestic social policy. We've actually awarded in the past um, uh, to a Dort team uh, who studied um, the uptake of childcare, faith-based childcare among Hispanic families uh, in Sioux County. Uh, And uh, I think there's really some opportunities there uh, for students who want to apply for the Hatfield Prize. The um, application, I think, goes live in 10 days. uh, And, you know, we would love for teams to apply for the prize in that way as well. Our guest has been Stephanie Summers from the Center for Public Justice. Stephanie, thanks for your work and for the conversation. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast from the Andreas Center at Dort University. Original music is provided by The Ruralist, and thanks are in order to Ruth Clark, Shannon Vischer, Vaughn Donahue and the production team at the Andreas Center. You can find us online at inallthings.org or follow us on Twitter under the name at in underscore all underscore things. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content beneficial, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others. Thanks for tuning in. Mm-hmm.